Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's talk crisis in healthcare, right? Why do we need primary care physicians? Well, a 2019 study looking at U.S. population data that was published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, found that every 10 primary care physicians per 100,000 people is associated with a 51.5-day increase in life expectancy. And we are looking at a primary care person power uh, disaster here in California and in most of the United States, particularly the rural heartland. More about that in a moment. But, you know, we Americans, we're competitive. So let's talk about accessible, comprehensive, community-based healthcare services. Let's talk about some of our competing countries you know, rich ones like Chile, Costa Rica, and Portugal, who continue to make gains in their life expectancy uh, as we, as ours continues to drop. Patients need access to primary care. Without that, minor complaints dry, evolve into chronic complex illnesses that demand chron- complex chronic treatment long term. If And if we decide that we're going to just use the ER and address our basic patient problems in the emergency room, we're going to spend 12 times what it would cost in a primary care office. 12 times, folks. That's billions of additional dollars going to waste every year. Furthermore, it just completely clogs up the emergency rooms, so we lose even more lives because of the true emergencies have to be sorted out and people can spend, and many of you will know someone who has spent 18 to 24 hours waiting for a bed. Again, we have a crisis going on. But the more evidence there is that access to primary care improves population health, uh, reduces health disparities and saves money, well, guess what? The field is attracting fewer and fewer medical students. And uh, meanwhile, the business of primary care is in upheaval. Investors are in uh, buying up primary care services. They're buying up pharmacies. They're trying to create vertical monopolies. Big retailers like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart, they're like, hey, one-stop shopping, one-stop access to primary care. Yeah, and I and they can just send them down the aisle to, over to the pharmacy to pick up what they need. Sounds like a nice vertical monopoly to me. What happened to that law against the corporate practice of medicine? There used to be one, you know. Uh, it's still on the books, but somehow you just set up a foundation and you get around it. And it's not good for that long-term relationship. Now, the prevalence between... in. Between 2005 and 2015, the number of primary care doctors in the United States fell by 11%. It was 46 to 100,000, and it dropped to 41. 
and more and more of the primary care physicians are specializing as hospitalists. And fewer than 9% of third-year internal medicine residents are interested in primary care uh, careers. They want to be specialists and make the book the big bucks. A neurosurgeon makes close to a million a year in their peak earning years. A family practice physician makes nationwide about 230000 more like 175000 in California, by the way. Uh, another reason why we have a lot of medical schools here and not a lot of doctors is because you can make a whole heck of a lot more money in Georgia than you can in California. And that's crazy. All That's crazy as well. But we are spending so much less of our money in primary care. Uh, countries like Chile and Portugal, which are turning things around, they spend about 14% of their health care budget, uh, their health care dollars on primary care. You know what we spent in 2020? 4.6%. And about 100 million Americans, that's about a third of the population, live in regions the government has labeled primary care workforce shortage areas. Hospitals are shutting down. People are losing access to obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, internal medicine, family practice, geriatrics, all the things that we need to keep the, the population healthy and thriving. That's all going away. And while urgent care centers may make well, they may provide quick and efficient relief for something like sprained ankles or getting checked out for the flu. They're not going to act as disease detectives. You're not going to spot signals in a familiar patient that could indicate the difference between upset stomach and diverticulitis. You're not going to see, you're not going to know the patient well enough to know that they have shifted drastically since you last saw them if you only see them once. And that's how we pick up disease in primary care, by listening, talking, and looking at the same person over time. So if we want to improve life expectancy in this country, get back on track to an increasing life expectancy, patients have to have a relationship with someone who has a rapport and the clinical skills to help them. And we have been ignoring primary care in this country let me just say that when they dis- during the pandemic, when they distributed the coronavirus vaccines, I tried to get vaccine for my patients. And I know a, num- a lot of other doctors who tried. The paperwork burden and the barriers were unreal. This is a time when we're in lockdown. Uh, physicians were robbed of the opportunity to give those shots to patients who came in for routine appointments. We could have helped with that distribution. But like I said, the bureaucratic barriers were insane. And of course, we're like going to sell, we're going to steal the vaccine and, you know, sell it to the wrong people. I don't know what they thought we were going to do. But anyway, we've been debating over this over since World War II. The, the federal and state governments have never really figured out to do this. It's a political hot potato. Uh, I Seriously, I, it, once they, it, I'm surprised they got Medicare through, but LBJ really knew how to do backroom deals. And I, I always wondered what he horse-traded for Medicare. But CVS is spending billions of dollars to enter the primary care market. They've also bought an insurance company 
Uh, so they've got a nice little vertical monopoly going there. And this prominent fee-for-service model is just making it worse because doctors are compensated for performing procedures on sick people rather than preventing people from falling sick. That's kind of crazy. I said that uh, CVS acquired Aetna. Well, now it's set up a series of clinics called Minute Clinics that are using nurse practitioners. And they also bought a primary care chain uh, that's $11 billion worth. It'll give them, it, it'll give it uh, control of medical centers for older adults in 20 states. Amazon bought one medical. Uh, we need a broader government-led effort to give all Americans access to primary care and reverse the downward trend in life expectancy. The market is just not going to work. We've got to revise the fee-for-service model that rewards primary care teams for uh, into a model that rewards people for looking after people. There's there were there have been calls for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid to fix this forever, and in 2021 they said, "Oh, we're going to do an initiative to strengthen primary health care." It was going to have an action plan in 2022, and we're still waiting at the end of 2023, for an action plan. And we really need to make a change. I hope you agree, and I hope that you will pressure your representatives to pressure the Department of Health and Human Services to get a move on with that plan, because each year, we see a decline in life expectancy. Diabetes, hypertension, and obesity are lifestyle diseases. And I'm sorry, training one primary care doctor is probably substantially tr- uh, cheaper than treating one patient with diabetes with, with Ozempic for the rest of their natural life. You've really, really got to think this one through, folks. Our next story, I promised you the robotic arm. This morning, I was watching a YouTube about robotics. Uh, on uh, It was a convention in China, and they were showing... A, I love that there's a robot dog, and it gets has a little TV screen for a face, and gets a little smile, and then little floating hearts come up. It's, it's just... You know, the kids were all over it, and I, I'm like, okay, that. how much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> but the answer is about 1500 bucks, but uh, it only has an hour of workable battery time. So you, know, you might want to stick with, you might want to stick with the mammalian version for the, for a while. Uh, but I came across this this afternoon when I was flipping through things to talk about. My third arm is going to be on order soon, as soon as they get this thing uh, uh, up there on Amazon, I'm buying. One hour training is all you need to control a third robotic arm. I don't know about you, but I have often wished for a third arm. In fact, when I call my husband over to help me out, I'm usually say, uh, saying, can I, have you, can I have a third arm for a minute? Because I just want one. And uh, so this was a study looking at just how long and how hard is it for people to learn to do a task using a supernumerary uh, robotic arm uh, versus learning to do the same task with a partner? Uh, 
in just one hour. So it was basically a contest between the robots and the human helper. And uh, many tasks, opening a door while carrying a package, require more than two hands. There's lots of things you have to do. And uh, in this study, they took uh, 24 participants, and they were given a variety of tasks to you and with a supernumerary computer arm, and they were also given one hour of training. Uh, they were given either, I love this, given either one hour of training to in how to use the arm, or they were asked to work with an untrained partner. Well, working with an untrained partner turned out to be harder than learning how to drive the robot. So this suggests that maybe we could, uh, maybe these uh, have a market. I certainly think so. I can't wait for my robotic arm and, for that matter, uh, my robotic dog. So I also promised you black cohosh and a discussion of menopause and uh, also a discussion of of surgical, or not really surgical, let's call this uh, medical menopause, iatrogenically induced in women who are premenopausal. It's a pretty rough ride. I had uh, I have a patient who I've been working with who is going through exactly that because she's young, and she had a pa- and and her breast cancer had spread beyond its primary. She's getting not one but two forms of hormone deprivation therapy. She has a long life expectancy ahead of her if they can cure her, and they're being very, very, very aggressive. But this has taken her from a normal menstrual cycle uh, in her mid-30s to a crash and burn, and I do mean burn, menopause, where she has two drugs. One, an aromatase inhibitor, which prevents her from making uh, estrogen from testosterone, and another, a gonadotropin-releasing hormone inhibitor, that actually prevents her from releasing, it prevents her basically from releasing the stimulus from the pituitary to make hormones. But the problem with this is this is a very, very abrupt swerve. And it's, I am not, Sure, I tried to find out exactly how common this level of aggressive therapy was, and I really couldn't get a sense for it. And I haven't had a chance to bother an oncologist about it. But let's. But it prompted me to do a little research. You know, I know a thing or two about herbs, and so I thought, well, maybe you know some of those herbs. We know, we know that you can't give soy, uh, or uh, ginistin, or. Uh, the other soy isoflavones, you can't g- give those to people who are on these hormone deprivation therapies because soy is a weak mod- uh, modulator of the estrogen alpha receptor, which is the one that people with estrogen receptor positive breast cancers have. So we can't really do that. Uh, we just can't, right? It's not... Uh, it's not okay. So what we end up doing, uh, or what I ended up doing, was saying, well, are there any other options? And as I went through these, indeed, I found one that uh, 
I'm getting, I'm pretty excited about. So let's talk about black cohosh. So black cohosh is si mi sufuga racemosa, not to be confused with the toxic blue cohosh. No, 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 no. Uh, but it is a non-estrogenic alternative to hormone replacement. Now, Years ago, it was thought to be a phytoestrogen, similar to the estro- to the soy-based phytoestrogens I just referred to. But it's actually a plant-based substance that does not, uh, although it has estrogen-like actions, it doesn't uh, modulate these receptors uh, by stimulating them. In fact, there's data in s- that they that it may actually reduce the number of estrogen receptors. Although I have to say, I have to say that's in cell culture. There is, however, in the medical literature, quite the revisionist move to bring back black cohosh as an alternative to hormone replacement therapy. Uh, there's an interesting study where they uh, looked at a double-blind study, 120 menopausal women. And they gave 48 black cohosh, 48 Prozac, and 48 uh, placebo. And what they found was that the black cohosh was more effective than either the Prozac or the placebo for hot flashes. Uh, but the but surprise, surprise, the the Prozac worked better for mood changes. And one study, which was very small, said that a dose or a dose of black cohosh is equal to about 0.6 milligrams of conjugated estrogen, which was the standard treatment dose back when we were using things like Prempro. Uh, another study shows that black cohosh may actually have a positive effect on bones. And because many studies have shown that it does not uh, stimulate the estrogen receptors that are found in breast cancer, it's being really looked at as a selective estrogen receptor modulated, something like Evisto or tamoxifen, something that blocks the effect of estrogen, but uh, by essentially occupying the receptor with a high affinity, but doesn't actually tip, tip the receptor over. So we'll talk about dosing in just a little while, but I want to just dive in a little bit to this idea that it reduces the number of estrogen receptors. I mentioned this was a study in cell cultures, and they were looking at breast cancer cells, uh, and they found not only did did a solution of black cohosh in cell culture, let's be clear, reduce the number of estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors, it actually caused a down-regulation of the receptors. And it also down-regulated the BRCA1 gene expression in some of those breast cancers. So this is fascinating. And the mechanism, of course, not well-established. But hot flashes can be just really awful. So let's talk about those neurotransmitter-like activities that are the putative reason that uh, black cohosh works. It, they have GABAergic 
uh, activities. You've heard of Calm and GABA. That's the the GABA receptor is what Valium attaches to. You have GABA, GABA, gamma-amidabutyric acid, as a neurotransmitter in your brain, and it helps you calm down. Uh, black cohosh also acts as a serotonin analog. So it raises serotonin levels, or at least the effect of serotonin levels. And so non-hormonal treatments are uh, a really great thing to be considering, particularly in women with breast cancer. So I'm going to take a moment and just kind of walk through what happens with a, a, a hot flash and what's going on in the brain. Because I did not, I found this fascinating and it's new information for me. So quite possibly it's new information for you as well. In all mammals in the reproductive state that have so bar, far been studied, no clue, not clear if they've um, studied the monotremes like uh, duck-billed platypus, platypuses, but let's continue. Uh, there are regularly occurring gonadotropin-releasing hormone pulses. This is happening uh, in the hypothalamus, which is the master regulator of everything. You know, it's this is... Uh, ground control for uh, the space mission of being a human and uh, ground control essentially in the the hypothalamus regulates the pituitary to release a normal pulsatile release of luteinizing hormones. So you've got a beep, beep, beep signal, very similar to what goes on with tonic nerve impulses uh, in nervous system. So there's always sort of a carrier beam, a carrier wave, and then you modulate that to send information. But there's always a signal that kind of keeps the connection alive. So you have a regular pulse of gonadotropin. You get a regular pulse of luteinizing hormone. And it goes up so far and then comes down. When you don't have estrogen, the hypothalamus wigs out, and you start getting very overactive gonadotropin-releasing hormone pulses. This leads to very high serum luteinizing hormone pulses. These correlate with the hot flashes. So when you get this overactive hypothalamus and these overactive pulses, they're the things that destroy the normal balance in the vasculature and lead to these hot flashes. And so they've found that uh, if you take the ovaries out of rats, you know, just to essentially mimic postmenopausal, you get the same thing. You get these these pulsatile LH surges. And I I imagine also the poor rats get hot flashes. Of course, we, we can't really ask them. But nevertheless, it's it's really menopause is really a, a type of brain deregulation, and what we want to emphasize, what I want to emphasize, is that this is really something that women who are suffering and who have had breast cancer and are afraid to take estrogen may want to consider. There's a whole literature out there if you start searching, and uh, I have the articles if you want to go to. AskDrDawn.com, where you will also find previous 
uh, programs and an archive of really rich interviews with some of the luminaries in the fields of uh, functional medicine, you please go ahead and do that. Uh, you just click the Contact Us button once you're at AskDrDawn.com and send me your email and I will be happy to pass these articles along to you. For those of you who are like, yeah, just tell me the doses, there are two ways to take it. You can take a tincture, and in the case of the tincture, what you're going to want to do is get one to two milligrams of triterpenoid glycoside. So you'll want a tincture that is standardized so that each dose delivers one to two milligrams. In the case, there's also an oral capsule called Remifemin, R-E-M-I-F-E-M-I-N, and typically... Uh, the doses are taking uh, once daily dosing of either 20 or 40 milligrams. And while there's only preliminary evidence so far about benefit to bone, that also sounds like a really, really good idea. I was going to see if I have another sex hormone article. The issues around the uh, sex hormone and brain stuff is really substantial. Researchers recent, uh, have been looking into the link between Alzheimer's and sex hormones for a very long time. And there's preliminary stuff that suggests that it really does make a difference, which um, it really does make a difference whether you're male or female in terms of the development of Alzheimer's. Now, a lot of our research in mice up until recently was only in male mice. So we missed something very, very important. Uh, We had evidence, a little bit of data, that it made a big difference whether whether women were taking estrogen uh, in terms of whether they developed dementia, but it had to be started. It, you had to start taking it just at menopause, and there has been a lot of uh, to and fro in the last twenty years about whether it's healthy to take long-term estrogen. I have my own opinions about that, and I'm not going to trouble with you with those with those. But Western University researchers were looking specifically at estradiol acetylcholine function, and the, con- the, the accumulation of beta amyloid in Alzheimer's disease. So when we look at at-risk older individuals, what, what we've seen, and this includes those fake mice or fake Alzheimer's mice, what they've revealed is that cholinergic neurons, the type that produce acetylcholine, are, more, are very vulnerable to uh, the Alzheimer's-associated beta amyloid accumulation. The debate is out whether amyloid is a symptom or a cause, but the correlation is pretty clear. The higher the beta amyloid, the more damage you see to the cholinergic neurons, and those are essential, particularly for normal memory. So there's differences in the cholinergic systems between male and female brains. And so the researchers wanted to see whether that affected uh, signaling and beta amyloid buildup. And so they used male and female mice, and they observed differences 
in the beta amyloid accumulation in male and female mice. Uh, and they also looked at human brains and aging human brains and the accumulation of uh, beta amyloid. And what they saw was that in humans, the beta amyloid accumulation was the same for men and women, but it was a different ratio in male and female mice. But they thought, well, wait, these female mice are not postmenopausal. So they went and picked out another mouse model of female mice who have who are modeled. In other words, they've had their ovaries removed, so they are the uh, postmenopausal mice. And this was done to see does that have an effect uh, on uh, the toxic beta amyloid uh, accumulation? And indeed, it is when the the hormone when the sex hormone estradiol is present present, you lose the uh, connection between the damage and the toxic amyloid. In, in other words, estrogen re- protects the cholinergic neurons in women. Now the question that needs to be looked at is, let's start studying younger women, young women who are in that perimenopausal age, where they're starting to have symptoms, where they're feeling just, where they're having the hot flashes, but they're still having periods. What's going on in their brains, and are they starting to show a spike or a change in the amount of a, uh, of uh, beta amyloid or in the activity of the cholinergic neurons? Because, you know, I certainly will tell you, having gone through a menopause myself, uh, a natural one for a couple of years until I just kind of, <laughs> how shall I put it? I folded. That's the simple way to put it. I, I I blinked and went on hormones and I'm still on them and I think my brain's still working. So I'm very happy with those results and I do believe that the data that has emerged in the last 10 years strongly supports the idea that the if there is an increased risk of breast cancer from hormone therapy, it is primarily an increased risk of discovering breast cancer and that by using uh, and that this can be mitigated by various nutritional strategies. And in some individuals, you simply aren't going to be safe, so you have to find another solution. But we now know what to look for, and it makes a really, really big difference in my book. I'm going to give you another, I think, really useful tool. And for anyone who is struggling with uh, pre-diabetes, diabetes, or has a family member, that's probably most of us, at least if you go out to the level of the cousin, you may want to teach them this new rule. This new rule is called the Altman rule. And it is a proxy for uh, glycemic load. And the Glycemic load is a really complicated thing to get your brain around, but it's essentially how rapidly will a particular food raise your blood sugar and hence cause you to spike your insulin, which over time is what leads to insulin resistance. So uh, glycemic load is very complicated. You you can look it up on a table, but then you have to figure out how much is 100 gram of uh, food. It just doesn't work. The Altman rule is intended to work with 
That's a simple equation. You can literally do it in your head. It's addition. And it uses the standard nutrition label. Now, the ALP rule is designed for packaged carbohydrate-containing foods. This is gonna. This is things like breakfast cereals, chips, crackers, granola, oat, um, pot, you know, oatmeal, uh, snack bars. You're getting the idea. It's not intended to be applied to meat, dairy, fruits, or vegetables. Uh, it doesn't work when you do that. But when you do this, you. But when you apply the Altman rule. You can seriously just look at the back of a package and decide whether to put it in your cart or not and be pretty sure that you're going to be choosing the lowest glycemic version of whatever it is, cereal, uh, crackers, granola bars, etc. So here's the formula. You take the grams of fiber. First of all, don't buy it if there's less than three grams of fiber in a serving. That's simple. Don't even have to do the math. Less than three grams per serving? Nope. Then you add the grams of protein, and you get a number. Grams of fiber plus grams of protein must be greater than grams of sugar. And this is not total carbs. This is grams of sugars. So, for example... Let's suppose that we're looking at a breakfast cereal and the total amount of calories is 230 and the serving side is two-thirds of a cup. Now, this breakfast cereal has uh, four grams of dietary fiber, so it passes the greater than three gram rules, and three grams of protein. So now we're at seven. And then you look at the grams of sugar, and how many grams of sugar are there in this product? One. So, yes, this food does meet the Altman rule. And you can consider your, you can put on your halo and go ahead and eat it. We're going to talk a little bit about dermatitis. I always used to have a joke about, you know, a radio uh, show talking about dermatitis, but given that we're based in the Monterey Bay area, uh, most of you have either had or seen a particular kind of uh, dermatitis, and that is to say you've seen allergic contact dermatitis. So we're going to talk about the two types of dermatitis, how the irritant and allergic. Irritant contact dermatitis is an inflammatory reaction caused directly by the substance. The substance itself is causing the inflammation. Whereas allergic contact dermatitis is your immune system causing the inflammation. So there's a delay, and that's one of the key points. Uh, Common causes of allergic contact dermatitis, latex, oils, dyes, resins, lots of compounds in textiles and footwear, rubber, cosmetics, and many other products used in daily life. You've probably seen those lidocaine patches. Well, what got me started on this was a case study about a fellow who was treated for uh, persistent postherpetic neuralgia. This fellow had had shingles back uh, some years ago, and then he continued to have pain, burning, and itching in the area 
where he had had the shingles on his back. He'd been through uh, his primary care doctor, a pain management team. They'd sent him to a neurologist. They tried him on gabapentin. They tried him on duloxetine. They gave him uh, they gave him lots of acupuncture, thoracic and cervical steroid injections, epidurals, and he kept having problems. The only thing that really worked for him was a 4% lidocaine patch, which he'd been using every day for the last three years. And when you look at the picture, what you see is a very chronic, thickened purple square on this guy's back, pretty much matching the shape of that that lidocaine patch. And it turned out to be a self-perpetuating problem because he was allergic to the lidocaine, but the lidocaine numbed up his nerves. It worked, but he was allergic to it. So as long as he continued to use the lidocaine, he was fine. But the minute he ran out or stopped, he got his quote-unquote post-herpetic neuralgia back. So, Contact dermatitis is a delayed reaction, and the shape of the contact dermatitis often reproduces the shape of the contact. Now, I said you were going to all be recognizing this. Poison oak is a type of allergic contact dermatitis, and about 20% of the population does not respond, and the rest of us do, and there's a delay, and that's because the immune system is active here. Another thing about poison oak is you don't get it on the palms of your hands. And in general, you don't get allergic contact dermatitis on the palms of the hands or the soles of the feet, but you do get it on the backs and on the tops of the feet. And that's because of the presence of those little teeny tiny hairs and also the fact that the skin on the palms and soles is so thick that the immune system is effectively screened from the agent. Other things can look like that, though. There's atopic dermatitis. This is the childhood eczema. Sometimes it's not just childhood, but people often have allergies, and it's a problem with the skin barrier. Basically, the Velcro that holds the skin together isn't fully, uh, isn't strong, and so stuff can get through, and they develop patches here and there, but those patches tend to go to characteristic places, and that's the folds. So the folds of the wrist, the folds in the neck, the folds in the elbows, the folds in the groins, that's where you'll see that rash. Lichen planus is another common one. This one happens in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and these are flat-topped purple-pink plaques. They're about as big as 10 millimeters, so about the size of a garbanzo bean. These like to be on the, they can be on the back, the shins. There tend to be a lot of them. They can also show up in the mouth. And in the mouth, you're going to see a kind of lacy pattern on the oral mucosa. If you see that, you know you're looking at oral lichen planus and those purplish pink raised plaques on the person. That's probably lichen planus as well. People can also get a version of this on the genitals. And in fact, that's quite common in older women. Ironically, probably the best treatment for that one is Bacterban, which is Mupiracin. Mupiracin is Bacterban. That's what we use for methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, but it has an anti-inflammatory property and relieves certain forms of this lichen planus. 
Now, psoriasis, the heartbreak of, and of course, we've all seen the ads for the monoclonal antibodies, uh, psoriasis often shows up on the opposite side of the arms and legs. In other words, the extensor surfaces, the parts of your body that are subject to friction, the front of your knees, the back of your elbows. It's also found very frequently on the scalp. Sometimes people have it in a different pattern, which always, and it can be sometimes difficult to make the diagnosis. I always look, I always check the scalp and I check the butt crease because those are two places where you'll get that that confirmation with plaques there, that's the only thing that does that just about. People sometimes will have pitting in their nails. The most distinctive thing about rashes is their distribution. And if they're, and these are all itchy rashes, everything I'm describing here tends to be itchy. So distribution is important and pattern in terms of that contact dermatitis. How about regenerative dentistry? That sounds a little geeky and fun. Scientists have actually learned how to use stem cells to regrow tooth uh, enamel. You know, enamel, teeth are an amazing thing, but they really, they were really not designed to last for 85 years. They need some help to make it through. I have a thing about ancient Egypt and mummies. And one of the interesting things is to look at mummies and Egyptian mummies and look at what sort of medical care they had, what sort of health problems they had. And I will tell you, even the highest elites of ancient Egypt had terrible teeth, terrible dental dental problems, abscesses, uh, osteonecrosis, and basically enamel worn down to the nubs. Now, part of that has to do with the fact that there's a lot of sand in Egypt, and it would get into the bread. And so uh, as they ground their bread, they would uh, they were using like sandstone matates, and so they would get grit in, uh, in their bread, and so they had, uh, you know, erosion of their teeth. And the, the, you know, a lot of people, there's 2.5 billion people in the world with serious tooth decay, and... That's something that is profoundly affected, by the way, by the oral microbiome, which in childhood tends to uh, be one that favors bacteria that produce acid. And that acid eats with, as you eat, if you eat a lot of sugar, you get a lot of bacteria because that's bacteria chow. You get a lot of acid, it eats away at the tooth enamel, other bacteria climb in and you start to get a, a cavity. Later on in life, we develop more problems with our gums and the microbiome shifts and the infections occur in the space between the tooth and the gum leading to a recession and the expression long in the tooth as the gums recede and you start seeing more and more of the root. Researchers were really interested in can we use stem cells? Can we trigger them to make enamel? Can we possibly make essentially a matrix of hydroxyapatite and calcium and uh, enamel and enamel-making cells and get something to happen. Now, the way that uh, enamel-making cells, these are called ameloblasts, uh, they're present in the teeth until your, 
you finish with your adult teeth, and then they just disappear. So researchers went to human fetuses uh, to obtain uh, the stem cells, and those had plenty of functioning uh, ameloblasts. And then they went and looked to see what genes were being very active, and uh, tooth enamel is mostly calcium phosphate, and so they were looking for the proteins designed to bind calcium, and they found those. And they looked at another uh, the other type of cell that's going to be present in an in a forming tooth, and those are and that's the dentin producing cells. In other words, the core of the tooth. Those are called odontoblasts, and this is hard, but it's not nearly as hard as enamel. And so they they worked on a cocktail of drugs to activate the genes that they knew were expressed in the ameloblasts, but they also had to figure out a different cocktail to make the odontoblasts. What they found was if they put those, if they activated the stem cells separately and then put them together, the cells produced what is now being called an organoid. It's basically a glob of tissue which mimics the structure of the biological organ, at least roughly. And these organoids, basically the amaloblasts wrapped around the odontoblasts, uh, happily churned out the chemical components of enamel. And they had to both be there. Uh, in other words, the odontoblasts themselves stimulated the production of enamel just by being in the same room with the uh, with the uh, amaloblasts. So it's it's this communication going back and forth. And so it's it's not a prototype yet for fixing enamel, but uh, you could definitely see how you might be able to regenerate teeth by implanting uh, this combination. There's lots of of thoughts that we could rebuild teeth and make enamel more durable. It's really just a question of how do we create the structure and how do we get it to work? Do we repair an existing structure or do we just grow a new biocompatible tooth? Or can we re can we essentially uh, just like re-enameling uh, your well, I guess it's not enamel, it's car paint, but it's very enamel-like, right? Uh, can you repaint your teeth and get the enamel back? This is The stem cell stuff is so tricky, and the, and the devil is always in the details. We still have not figured out how to do cartilage, and that we've been working on for 15 years. The problem is not getting stem cells to grow cartilage. The problem is getting the cartilage to grow in the right location, and grow smoothly and and spread out so that it actually imitates the cartilage that forms naturally in a joint because of hey communications with the osteoblasts the bone building cells talk to the cartilage cells just in the way that the same thing happens with teeth well let's end up on a rather bizarre and interesting study uh, this is uh, published in the journal Resuscitation, and it's new evidence indicating that patients recall death experiences after cardiac arrest. This was a study where they actually had people hooked up to EEGs. Uh, I uh, wonder how they set this up, but they had, uh, it was 25 U.S. and British hospitals, and what they found was that some survivors of cardiac arrest um, described lucid death experiences. 
they had 567 CPR events where people got uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Fewer than 10% of those got well enough to leave the hospital. But of the, but of the ones who did survive, 4 out of 10, 40%, recalled some level of consciousness during CPR. And a subset of these patients, as I said, received brain monitoring. During their CPR, nearly 40% had brain activity that returned to near normal from flatline at points, even an hour into continuous CPR. And this technology uh, saw spikes in gamma, delta, theta, alpha, and beta waves that are normally associated with higher mental function. If this is true, and it's not just some kind of artifact of the study, it's absolutely amazing. The authors hypothesize that the, when the brain flatlines, the dying brain removes the natural inhibitory systems. This disinhibition uh, may be responsible for the near-death experience. Lucid recall of all the stored memories, normally we repress those, but if you removed the barriers to recall, you might be able to see your life flash before your eyes. We've thought that the brain suffers permanent damage 10 minutes after. We haven't proved that it doesn't, but the fact that you can see signs of electric activity much longer than we expected certainly raises the issues. And of course, many implications there, which I won't be able to get into because it's time for me to say goodbye. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.